the idea that somehow the chairman of British Telecom or indeed anyone else was in any doubt that we were going to introduce a windfall tax, I find rather hard to say. No one who knew Diana will ever forget her. Millions of others who never met her, but felt they knew her, will remember her. Yeah, well, I mean, I wasn't going to go off first, because I don't know you're going to get slagged off for going one way or the other, I'll slag off not going, but I filmed my mum yesterday, my mum said that I'd better go. That there is no question of Sinn Féin participating in any talks whatever unless there is a clear, credible and unequivocal ceasefire. Hi and welcome back to Barely Getting By the Long 1990s. This is episode three. I'm Emma Shortis. And I'm Chloe Ward. So in last week's episode, we were, of course, focused on the United States. And this week, we are going to travel across the Atlantic, as we have been prone to do, to Chloe's area of expertise, which is, of course, the United Kingdom. And the UK in the 1990s was dominated very much, of course, by Tony Blair and New Labour and a kind of young, hip Prime Minister, much like the US in the 1990s as well. But I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that I know shamefully little about Tony Blair, aside, of course, from his decision to to go into Iraq with George Bush kind of much later in his tenure. But otherwise, I kind of like, to be perfectly honest, sometimes in my mind, he gets a little bit mixed up with Maxwell Sheffield from The Nanny. Which I think, Chloe, is probably really bad. I'm, I'm sorry. I find that, that hilarious, um, especially in light of the devastating news this week that Fran Drescher, the star of The Nanny, is now apparently a 5G conspiracist. So oh. she's another 90s icon for our emerging bad list. Um, but it does, I guess, one thing that has always perplexed me about Tony Blair is that he has or had kind of a reputation for being a bit sexy and I don't know if it's because I'm not British uh, or I don't know if it's because I was too young to you know to see like Tony Blair in his prime but that just it just doesn't make any sense to me. Just just to clarify, I don't find either Maxwell Sheffield or Tony Blair attractive. <laughs> okay, okay, I guess that's that's what my I mean. association like, is more the kind of um, like charming, slightly bumbling toff. But you know, at, at the end of the day, he's got a really good heart. That's how how the kind of images have gotten mixed up for me. But I suspect you're going to tell me that's also maybe a bit wrong. Well, it's 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 an interesting point, <laughs> given that Tony Blair was the leader of the Labour Party in the UK, and also given that um, I think a lot of people on the left would be quite ready to call you on that um, on that comparison between Tony Blair and someone like Maxwell well, Sheffield, who had a good heart. So. That's actually probably a good place to start. I, and this is, you know, just through my addiction to refreshing Twitter that I came to this, but I was reminded a couple of weeks ago about an interesting story from a few years back that connects British Labour politics in the 90s with Australian Labour politics. And that was this story about how Alistair Campbell, who was Tony Blair's, Tony Blair's communications chief while he was, before, while he was Prime Minister, how he asked Paul Keating, our Australian Prime Minister in the early 1990s, to give Tony Blair hate lessons. So lessons in how to hate the Tories. Wow. Okay, so it sounds like my image of a kind-hearted toff is uh, incorrect. Well, 
that's I guess that's not really that's not really where I was going with that because so I thought it was interesting because this you know talking about labor leaders hating their opposition it does show us something that I think has been lost from the 90s which perhaps is something that we should look back on quite kindly and is something that could stand to be revived. You know, I've spoken before on the podcast about this idea of a throwback democracy that was much more um, conciliatory, much more civil, and how that's been identified with these centre-left leaders like Bill Clinton and, and Tony Blair. But that's ignoring the fact that whatever their political limitations and what are the limitations of their philosophies, they, could, they were really effective as opposition yeah, I think that's a really good point. And you're right. I mean, that's something that's certainly lost about Clinton and, and also that I think like Clinton has retrospectively kind of tried to erase. They try to reconstruct themselves as, as you know, bipartisan um, thinkers who kind of embraced everybody in contrast with the politics of today. So so on that note, then, why don't we go back to the UK in the in the 90s and look like look at what was actually happening? Because I'm right. Am I right in thinking Blair comes quite a bit later than Clinton, later in the decade. Yeah, that's right. So Tony Blair and the Labor Party were elected in May 1997. By this point, the Tories had been in power for nearly 20 years. Margaret Thatcher was no longer the Prime Minister and had not been the Prime Minister for quite some time by then. She'd lost power in 1990 and was replaced by John Major. In the meantime, and this is something that actually goes back to the 1980s and particularly Labor's really devastating election loss in 1983, the Labor Party had been through what was really a decade of soul-searching and that led to calls from people like Tony Blair and his allies for the party's modernisation. So what they saw was that the Labor Party couldn't rely on its old industrial working-class base to win power. It had to start winning over middle-class voters. Okay, and that's coming from, like, a kind of young, new faces in the party. Well, yes, but interestingly enough, um, our friend Eric Hobsbawm, who we spoke about in the first episode of this season of Barely Getting By, he made kind of a, a guest appearance from the left in these debates because in the 1980s he was calling on Labour to recognise and to accommodate the social and economic transformations that had happened under Thatcherism um, in order to beat Thatcher. So it wasn't just coming from the party's right. There were actually figures on the left who were helping to pave the way for new Labour. Wow, okay. But I don't I don't think of Tony Blair as kind of an Eric Hobsbawm progressive. No, 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 not at all. He's I mean he's a progressive in a very different sense of the word. Um, one of the interesting I think one of the interesting cleavages that starts to emerge in the Labour Party then, and you know, and that's not to say that it wasn't there before, but I think it's certain, certainly become one of sort of the dominating facts in what is still a very divided Labour Party, is that the 90s saw the ascendance of sort of the Tony, Bla- the Tony Blair Labour Party, which can also be identified with kind of a win-at-all-cost win centre-leftism, which I think, you know, a lot of listeners in Australia... Um, and listeners who are interested in progressive parties here will probably will probably understand quite well. Okay, so it, the aim is to get get Thatcher and the Tories. Well, sorry, not Thatcher by then, but Major and the Tories out. Yeah, that's in right. any way that they can. That's yeah. right, and that that comes at some ideological cost. So, Labor's leader prior to Tony Blair, John Smith, he died suddenly in 1994, and then Tony Blair came in as party leader. As leader, one of his 
first, earliest, most striking gestures was to modify Clause 4 of the Labor Party's constitution, which had committed it to nationalisation. Instead, he changed that, so it committed the party to, what, and this is kind of, uh, kind of paraphrasing, to balancing public and private ownership and the creation of wealth with social justice. So he was certainly moving the party away from its, from its socialist origins. Yeah, okay, that, that's a pretty much pretty dramatic break and and it it worked I guess well it absolutely worked when we got to that 1997 election which was won in a landslide but there were a lot of factors in play there so for one thing and given the the toxicity of the UK tabloid press which I think a lot of people will be kind of passingly familiar with um Tony Blair was able to win the support of Rupert Murdoch and the Murdoch press Wow. Okay. And am I right in thinking that Blair maybe had a bit more than support from from Rupert Murdoch's wife? Um, Is that a bit crude of me? A little bit. We'll, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes. Um, there is a rumour and very much, very much rumour. I don't know if it's ever been confirmed by any of the parties involved that Tony Blair did have an affair with Rupert Murdoch's wife at the time, Wendy Deng. So... <sighs> Well, look, okay, we don't, but maybe since obviously clearly some people found him sexy. Um, So, first of all, (laughs) I'm looking at Emma's face and she seems to be slightly retching. So, Tony Blair, so he came in and, yes, he had the backing of the Murdoch press. There was also an element of the, the electorate just being fatigued after 20 years of Tory government and being ready for something new. And that's what Tony Blair and his Labour Party promised they promised something new they even called you know they they rebranded rebranded themselves as new labor okay so they're kind of they're they're sweeping in you know their fresh faces as a young prime minister does this come you know like again in the u.s with it with that certain kind of optimism are people feeling excited about it well they they absolutely they tried they they claimed to be modernizing and they did come in and they were very strategic in i guess kind of cashing in on Tony Blair's youth and making them and I guess kind of creating this cultural moment of enormous optimism. So there is this famous drinks reception that Tony Blair held at Downing Street for the music industry and Noel Gallagher from Oasis famously turned up. Yeah, well, I mean, I, wa- I wasn't going to go at first because uh, like, you're going to get slagged off for going one way or the other. I slagged off for not going. But I filmed my mum yesterday. My mum said that I better go because it's a great honour for the... Uh, Someone from Burnage, I suppose, she said she never thought one of her sons would be going to see the Prime Minister. And he was kind of, he wasn't so much, he wasn't really pilloried at the time, but a couple of years later he was asked about this and he was, Noel Gallagher was kind of regretful given how Tony Blair's government and Tony Blair himself panned out as, you know, I guess kind of at the very least not living up to the promises that they made in 1997. Okay, now we will get, of course, to a much longer discussion about the role of music in Tony Blair's UK, not just Noel Gallagher, of course, but Britpop in general, because it's Chloe's absolute favourite topic. But before we do that, Chloe, could you maybe tell us a little bit about what it is that Blair did after he won that election in 1997? Yeah, so, you know, I said before that he claimed to be a modernising Prime Minister and that the Labour movement and the Labour Party was now was modernizing itself and certainly his early and I think his probably his most 
significant and lasting political successes were about modernising the Union, so modernising the United Kingdom. And when I talk about that, I mean, I'm talking about the devolution processes and the establishment of national parliaments in Scotland and Wales, which hadn't existed previously, and also really taking in hand and taking quite personally as his mission, um, overseeing the peace process in Northern Ireland, which I think we'll also speak about in a later po- in a later podcast. Yeah, because that is that is hugely significant, not just in the UK but but globally. I think when we're looking at the nineteen nineties and and I guess war and peace. But what what else is Blair doing at home? What what does I guess what what is the kind of new Labour philosophy? So and it's very much a transatlantic philosophy that I think you could you well you will as easily apply in the US and even. Even, even somewhat in the in the Australia, which was kind of an inspiration for what British politicians were doing at the time. But it all comes under the banner of this political political and economic philosophy of the third way. So I mentioned before about how Tony Blair revised the uh, revised Labour's clause for so its socialization objective. That was really about this third way compromise between the center and center and center right market oriented economic policies and social democratic, uh, centre-left social policy. So Tony Blair, and, you know, it's it's extraordinary to think how, I guess, how much people admired him or how clever they thought he was for doing things like this. He said that he wasn't, he wasn't a social, and, you know, I'm going to have to try and get the pronunciation right because it's kind of a, it's sort of nuanced, but he said he wasn't a socialist, but he was into socialism. So he was separating socialism from its traditional economic and material claims to turn it into a doctrine that he said was based on social justice. Right. So, sorry, can you maybe give, give an example of what that means in, in practice? Yeah, so practically what this meant was the state stepping away from direct intervention and ownership in the economy. And this is remembering that historically after the Second World War, Britain was one of the most statist economies in the world. So under Margaret Thatcher, there'd been this series of privatisations of essential services. So things like things like railways. And while Blair and New Labour made some promises around rolling back those privatisations, in practice, they didn't really do anything at all once they came into power because they were quite comfortable with the with the private sector having a significant role in, pu- in in public services because they thought that you could tax your way tax tax the prosperity that came out of that and redirect it into social programs so one of the you know i guess signature domestic policies that Blair had that was a big success and you know is one of the things that i think most people are quite happy to give Blair a lot of credit for was sure start which is a program of early childhood interventions that include you know funding for childcare uh, early education, healthcare, family support, which was funded through tax taxation, and that was significantly different to things like, say, the NHS, which is a which is a, a universal provider. So, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, it's a kind of um, capitalism with a heart, for want of a better phrase. Yes. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. So, um, I think they had a lot of ways of describing it. So, Blair called it socialism. Um, Peter Mandelson, who, oh, no, they also call it things like new capitalism. Peter Mandelson, who is an MP and a spin doctor, who is known colloquially as the Prince of Darkness, which <laughs> tells you something about Blairite operators. He famously said that 
he was intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich as long as they pay their taxes. Right, okay. So, yeah, that's relying on a, a big assumption, though, that people will pay those taxes. Well, yes, and, and, and it's, it, relies on, it relies on both, you know, goodwill, competence, and also political ability to make sure that that runs well. So, you know, I think it's, it's very much a doctrine for prosperous times that in a moment of political panic or economic downturn is enormously risky because you don't, you know, you don't have an active and competent state ready to fill in those gaps when, you know, those tax revenues start declining. Right, which, yeah, is a, is a pretty relevant criticism for our time, a time of economic downturn, when, of course, that kind of capitalist state has to be underwritten by, by the government, by the state. Yeah, and we've had kind of this very rapid philosophical turn turnaround from capitalists, where they're now willing to invest in, willing to invest in essential services, and never mind the debt. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot more to be said about that. One of the really interesting things I think about Blairism that again puts it into dialogue with what was happening in the USA and also also here in Australia is that as part of those kind of accommodations with capital his government was kind of pioneering in its use of public private investment so which we'll be familiar with and the reason that comes to mind when you talk about how you know the possibility that Blairism and the third way set us up for a fall now is that I think one of the interesting debates that's going on here in Australia is about how we have had a massive loss of capacity in our own public service because so much has been has been you know um, tended out and hyped off to the to the private sector over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, that's right. And I guess that's a, a kind of one of the bigger points that we're trying to get to with this series is that a lot of the kind of consequences that we're dealing with now have their kind of origins, I suppose, in the in the policies of the 1990s and not just the policies of, of conservatives, the policies of, of New Labour and the New Democrats. So then I guess on that note, as we as we kind of wrap up Chloe what what is your overall assessment of of the Blair government well I'm actually going to jump to Margaret Thatcher's assessment of the Blair government when Margaret Thatcher was asked in 2002 what her her greatest achievement was she replied Tony Blair and New Labour and what that means is that Tony, Tony Blair and New Labour, they operated on and, you know, arguably they were, they were restricted to ground that was laid out for them by Thatcherism. So Thatcherism basically set out what, what was possible in politics for, you know, decades after her demise. And that meant that whatever good things like, you know, like the Shore Start program that the, that the Blair government did in the 1990s, they were doing that in ways that were kind of predetermined by by Thatcherism. And I think that that, for one, you know, apart from the fact that, you know, it has in some way led to serious consequences today for our politics and for our economies, it also came, I think, at great cost for the Labour Party in the UK. So what the Labour Party turned into was an election-winning machine. They won three elections. And that meant that, you know, for powerful people in the Labour Party, the the party's purpose became to win elections, but that came at enormous ideological cost. And that's part of the reason why we see the Labour Party in the UK at, you know, 
I guess kind of kind of in a in a in a permanent state of civil war. And of course, we haven't got to the event and the decisions that would permanently overshadow Tony Blair's legacy and really were the his undoing and caused a lot of people to start to reassess what had looked like a really optimistic and interesting time in UK politics in the 1990s, and that was Iraq. Yes, which of course is an enormous topic with enormous consequences, which we will get to in a future episode. But in our next instalment on the UK, we will be talking about, uh, I guess, another big topic, because of course, Tony Blair is not the head of state in the United Kingdom. There is a different head of state, and that is going to be our focus for the next instalment, which is, of course, on the British royals. So we hope you'll join us then. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original music by Stuart Cullen.